I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. The first epistle that made it into our Bibles anyway. (coughs) We know a previous letter was written to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we are going to begin this new chapter this morning. Having finished chapter 11, in which Paul began a section dealing with issues pertaining to corporate worship, and you know that in chapter 11 there were two main subjects. One was the covering that a woman ought to wear in the corporate worship of God, and the second was issues pertaining to the Lord's Supper. And now we enter into chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, and Paul will spend a lengthy section of this letter dealing with things pertaining to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So I'm very excited to jump into these verses with you this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of God. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols even as ye were led. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man, speaking by the Spirit of God, calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Amen. Mm -hmm. Mankind possesses an innate desire for things that are exhilarating and sensational. This desire causes us to be on a constant hunt for experiences. Sometimes these experiences come as a result of acquiring a prized possession. Other times they come from traveling to an exotic destination. Often these experiences come when we meet a famous, renowned celebrity. For these reasons, millions of people will travel millions of miles and spend millions of dollars all chasing after these experiences. The problem, however, is that authentic experiences of this caliber are often difficult to obtain. It's precisely for that reason that they're so desirable. Those who desire these rare experiences but don't have the means to obtain them have created a solution. And that solution is counterfeits. Webster defines a counterfeit as something that was made in imitation of something else with intent to deceive. Those who want the experience of being rich but don't have money fabricate counterfeit bills. Men who want the experience of wearing a Rolex but could never afford one will instead buy a watch with similar looks and fewer zeros on the price tag. Women who want the experience of carrying Gucci or Louis Vuitton without paying designer prices will instead buy something made in China at Walmart. Those who desperately want to see Elvis in concert but can't because he's dead will instead... Go and watch some mediocre cover band. Well, the reason why you're laughing 
is because you know what the issue is with counterfeits. They're not the real thing. They're cheap, poorly made substitutes. And they might give us a temporal, emotional experience, but they do not provide lasting, substantial value. Paul is writing 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 because the Christian church is not immune to this insatiable desire for experiences. Make no mistake about it, Christianity is an experiential religion. There is a real personal ministry of the Holy Spirit that is attended with unction and power. You are not just a Christian because you know some things about Jesus. You're a Christian because you know Jesus. And He knows you. The Spirit regenerates and sanctifies and gives gifts to His people that produces experiences of authentic spirituality. Right. Yes. There's experiences to Christianity. And if your Christianity has never caused any experiences in your life, you might not have genuine Christianity. But when we begin to idolize experiences and chase after experiences, and when we begin to do so at the expense of the truth, Oh, we get experiences all right. But we don't get the real thing. We get a cheap, fabricated counterfeit that has no divine power. Any of y'all ever went to a camp meeting? Not coming to hear good, sound, orthodox preaching, but just coming hoping that you get excited. You want to shout. You want the experience. I don't care about the truth. These experiences are counterfeit because they are produced by emotionalism divorced from the truth of the Word of God and not by a genuine work of the Holy Spirit. Questions about the authenticity of spiritual experiences have certainly been exacerbated in our day by the charismatic and Pentecostal movements. But questions about the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts and the ministry of the Spirit in the church are not unique to our time. We know that because that's exactly the type of questions that the Corinthians were asking Paul. Let me just remind you that the latter half of 1 Corinthians, beginning with chapter 7, is based on the questions that they were uh, asking Paul in a letter that they sent to him. And we don't have the letter that the Corinthians sent to Paul, but we're able to deduce what some of those questions were from the answers that Paul gives. When you're reading 1 Corinthians, it's as if you're listening into one half of a telephone conversation. You know, here's what happens at my house all the time. Somebody calls me, and I talk to them on the phone, and I talk to them for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it is, and then I get off the phone, and Abigail's in the kitchen, and I'll say, oh, that was Scott. And she'll say, oh, I know. I figured that out by what you were saying. Right? Or that was Larry. Oh, I know, because I figured it out from what you were saying. Well, we don't have the letter that the Corinthians sent Paul, but we have his answers, so we're able to kind of figure out the questions that the Corinthians were asking. Remember in chapter 7, Paul spent 40 verses answering questions about marriage, intimacy in marriage, divorce, virgins, 
all of these different things. Chapters 8 through 10 were all questions about meat sacrificed to idols and Christian liberty. And now, this section, chapters 11 through 14, are all questions about the public worship of the church. And within that section of questions about corporate worship are inquiries concerning the role of the Spirit in the church, specifically spiritual gifts and how they unite and function in the body of Christ. So over the next few Lord's Days, we're going to go through this chapter and look at Paul's answer to these questions. What are spiritual gifts? How many are there? Do all Christians have one or more? How do we know what gift we have? Why does God give spiritual gifts? What role does the Holy Spirit play in the church? What is the nature of His ministry? What does He do in your life? But before Paul can answer these questions, before we can answer these questions, he must first deal with a question that is basic and foundational to this whole study. And I believe that's really the question that he's answering in our text today, verses 1 through 3. And that is this, how do we discern between the genuine, authentic ministry of the Holy Spirit and that which is counterfeit? That's the question that Paul is dealing with today. And so I give you by way of a title of this sermon, a test for spiritual authenticity. A test for spiritual authenticity. There's three things I want you to see. Three verses, three points, all alliterated. Easy, right? Here we go. Number one, in verse one, I want you to see problematic ignorance in the church. There's problematic ignorance. Notice Paul begins and he says, now concerning spiritual gifts. And if you've been paying attention in our study of 1 Corinthians, you will immediately recognize Paul's transitional statement. He uses this phrase all throughout 1 Corinthians, now concerning. Chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the things whereof he wrote unto me. Chapter 7, verse 25, now concerning virgins. Chapter 8, verse 1, now as touching in the King James or in the New King James, now concerning things offered unto idols. Chapter 12 and verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts. Chapter 16 and verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints. So this indicates for us that Paul is transitioning to a new set of questions. He has concluded his teaching on the Lord's Supper. And now he's going to begin to deal with the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts. Let me just say at the outset that there is no reason for you to be afraid of this subject. Some of you came from a background where the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, His person and His work, was radically abused. You were told that if you didn't have certain experiences like seeing visions, dreaming dreams, or speaking in tongues, then you didn't actually have the Holy Spirit and you might not even be saved. Or you were told that if the preacher wasn't hooping and hollering and shouting and running around the church, then he wasn't preaching in the power of the Holy Ghost. You were told that if you went to a meeting and you went to hear preaching and, and, and if you didn't feel some tingly, sensational 
feeling inside of you when the choir got up to sing or when the man of God got behind the pulpit, then you weren't spiritual. And now you've come to see the folly in that view, but perhaps it's left you a bit sensitive to the whole discussion. Well, if that's not what the Holy Spirit is, if that's not what His ministry looks like, then what is it? Well, I want you to see from clear, unambiguous teaching, it's found here in the Word of God, that you don't have to be afraid of the Holy Spirit, nor of His ministry in your life, and nor should we downplay the work of the third person of the triune God. Amen. And let me just be blunt for a moment. If I can be blunt. It's really easy to get behind the pulpit and to preach against uh, the, the problems with the other camps, right? I could get up and preach a 10-point sermon on the problems with Pentecostalism and charismatic theology, right? But that's not our problem. What's our problem? As Reformed people, what's our problem? Well, if we're going to fall in one of these two ditches, it's more than likely not going to be the charismatically chaotic ditch. Right. I'm not worried about tongue speaking and miracle working in the church, but I do want to be careful, and I'm not worried about this either, but I do want to be careful that we don't neglect the true biblical teaching on the Holy Spirit and His work in our lives. I have a book that's 300 plus pages on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit written by a theologian that I greatly admire and respect, and I'm not going to say his name simply because I have so much admiration and respect for him, and I'm not going to put his name out there in our sermon audio because I still would, would regard him as one of the greatest theologians of the 1900s as far as Reformed systematic theology goes. If, you want to, if you're really curious, I'll tell you after church. And I have his book on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and in his book on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't even deal with Ephesians 5.18. Be filled with the Spirit, right? Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. No, it's primarily a theoretical study. Very little is said about the practical working of the Holy Spirit in our lives as believers. I think that's what we're missing out on, if we're missing out on anything. And I hope we're not missing out on that. I don't want us to miss out on that. God doesn't want you to miss out on that. Because as we'll see, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to your salvation and your Christian life. Amen. So notice, Paul says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren. And this is a way, uh, this is Paul's way of softening the blow. He does this, right? Even in the, uh, the Galatian epistles, we'll refer to them as brethren. It's kind of like you walk up to somebody, you put your arm around them and say, Now brother... So next time, learn from Paul. Next time, you're ready to bring that word of rebuke. You're ready to bring that correction. Wrap some velvet around the hammer and then smack them with it. Okay? <laughs> there's, no, there's no virtue in just obliterating people. There's not. So Paul says, brethren, here's the smack. You ready for it? I would not have you ignorant. If your Bible just says, I don't want you to be unaware, he uses the word ignorant. It's a rebuke. It's a smack. And the reason why it's a smack is because this is a church that prided themselves in how spiritual they were and how much knowledge they had. Specifically, knowledge about the Spirit. 
specifically a, a lavish amount of spiritual gifts. And Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. And that's implying what? That they were ignorant. You're ignorant, Paul says. This was also a church that was plagued by pride and division. Knowledge, what? Puffs up. But love or charity edifies. It's apparent from Paul's teaching in this chapter that some of the members of the church were using their spiritual gifts or what they thought were spiritual gifts to exalt themselves over other members of the body. They were using the Holy Spirit to bring glory and honor to themselves. Let me let you in on this. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about a thorn in his flesh given to him by God. Why did God give him that thorn in the flesh? Because God had allowed Paul the privilege of being the recipient of an abundance of spiritual revelation and God did not want Paul to be puffed up in pride because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit working through him as an apostle. If God's not going to allow pride in his apostle, he's not going to allow it in you and me. Amen. The purpose of spiritual gifts is not self-serving or self-glory, but rather it is the edification of others that serves as the reason for our spiritual gifts. Why does God give you a spiritual gift? So you can serve others in the context specifically of the church. That's why when anybody applies for membership and they fill out our questionnaire for membership, the last question on that questionnaire is, what spiritual gifts do you believe that you have, that you have in the past, or would like to use for the service of the church? That's why God gives you spiritual gifts. A spiritual gift is a gift through which the Holy Spirit ministers to others through us. A spiritual gift is not the ability to do something that makes us look good. It is a gift that gives us the ability to magnify Christ before others. A spiritual gift is not something that centers around an emotional experience. It is a gift that centers on the Son of God. That's what it is. So before Paul jumps into a full or teaching on spiritual gifts, he first gives us a litmus test to differentiate between true gifts of the Spirit and their cheap counterfeits. And he's going to do this by reminding the Corinthians of their spiritual state before their conversion and the profound change that was wrought upon their life by the power of the Holy Spirit in their salvation. And we need to be very careful because on the one hand, you might, you might hear me and you might hear me saying experiences are bad and that's not what I'm saying. In fact, Paul will demonstrate the truthfulness of the Spirit by pointing to the experiences of the Corinthians. It's about having our experiences in the right order and in the right relationship to the truth of the Word of God as it's received in our heart. And listen to me, brothers and sisters. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. Amen. He is at work in your life. You receive the Holy Spirit in the selfsame moment that you placed your trust in Jesus Christ. Yes. And He's been with you 
throughout the entirety of your Christian life, on your good days and on your bad days, and He's with you this morning, and He's going to be with you until the end. Yes, amen. And that is evidence, not by your rolling around on the floor and speaking in tongues. Right. It's evidenced by the love and devotion that you have for Jesus Christ that you didn't have before your conversion and by the dramatic change in the way you now live your life. There are people in so-called Christian churches that run around and bark like dogs and supposedly get slain in the spirit that don't know God from a rock. I like what David Miller says. He said he was in this meeting and they had this charismatic... If y'all don't know David Miller, David Miller has muscular atrophy. He's paralyzed from the neck down. He's a preacher out in Arkansas. He's very visibly paralyzed. And there was some charismatic faith healer at some conference he went to and this faith healer was was, uh, naming people in the congregation and he was saying, oh God's telling me that somebody out there has... Stomach ulcers. And God is healing them right now. God is telling me that somebody has bursitis in their elbow and God is healing them right now. And David Miller said he was down there on the front pew wagging his head around trying to get this guy's attention going, you who, I'm the only one here with a visible physical ailment. David Miller said that guy must have heard a jackass brand and thought it was God calling him to preach. <laughs> The Holy Spirit is not manifested through these emotional, one-time, sensational acts. The power of the Holy Spirit is manifested in that saint of God who lives a faithful Christian life and loves a God they once hated and hates the sins they once loved. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice how Paul proves this very point. Seen the problematic ignorance? Notice verse 2, the past idolatry. Paul says, Ye know that ye were Gentiles. The word Paul uses here is the Greek word for Gentiles. You might have a a translation that, that uses a more dynamic translation there, and it uses the word pagans. That's not the, the word that Paul used, but the reason why your translation would use that word is because that's what Paul means. It's an interpretation, really. Paul is not using the word Gentile in an ethnic sense. He's using it in a religious sense. Right. If a Gentile is converted, he still has Gentile blood, but he no longer practices Gentile religion. Yep. The word Jew, especially in the New Testament, has both an ethnic and a religious definition. If a Jew is converted to Christ, is he still a Jew? Well, yes and no, right? Uh, He's still ethnically a Jew, but no longer practices the religion of Judaism. That's the the meat of what Paul's getting at here. You were Gentiles, meaning you used to practice your Gentile religion. Paul is reminding them of what their religious life was like before they became Christians. Notice I said their religious life. You understand that everyone is religious, right? You know that, don't you? Everyone worships something. Mm -hmm. Some of you grew up in a Christian home. Some of you, by the way, this is the best testimony 
some of you don't have a conscious memory of worshiping anything other than Jesus Christ. It's not to say you were born saved, but it is to say that by God's grace, He has kept you, He has kept you from paganism. But many of you did not grow up in a Christian home. In fact, most of you did not grow up in a Christian home. You remember your pagan days very well. Many of you have very vivid memories of your life before Christ. Well, you can identify then with the Corinthians. None of them grew up in a Christian home. Not not any of the original members of the church. All of them were saved out of paganism. All of them were saved out of lives of sin and idolatry. And Paul wants them for a moment, as he's making this point about the Holy Spirit, to remember that. Remember that. Not just remember what you did, but remember the state of your heart, the state of your soul, the the affections, the desires, the passions, the lusts. Remember, Paul says, how you were, notice these words, carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were led. The interesting thing about first century paganism is that it was incredibly experiential. They went to temples where they would bow down and worship dumb idols that could not speak and could not move, yet the worshipers of these false idols looked to these idols for some sort of sensational experience. That's why they would cut themselves and beat themselves. That's why they would even use forms of drugs and hallucinogens in those first century pagan temples that would alter their state of mind so they could somehow receive some sort of experience from the idol. That's why the temple of Aphrodite was staffed with thousands of occult prostitutes. Well, the paganism of today, brothers and sisters, is no different. It's all about chasing an experience. Chasing the high of some drug. Uh, Chasing the inebriation of alcohol. Chasing the thrill of money and wealth. Chasing the physical pleasure of sexual immorality. And perhaps some of you remember your life before Christ and you remember your pagan days, and you remember what it's like to be an idolater that worships the God of drugs, money, and sex. You remember your life of endlessly chasing these experiences. All you were concerned about was, where will my next paycheck come from? Where will my next high come from? And where will my next sexual encounter come from? These were the idols that controlled you. Notice Paul's language. They carried you away. They led you about. Pagans are under the control of their idols. Why? Because what you worship is what controls you. It's important now. Paul is, is developing this point. You have to follow the logic. What you worship is what controls you. What you set your heart on and purpose to serve is what controls you. Don't forget Paul's teaching from verse 10. You say, how do these dumb idols, they're dumb, they can't speak, they can't move, they have no power, how do they control me? 
Remember Paul's teaching in chapter 10. An idol is nothing. But behind the face of idolatry are demonic entities that seek to bring destruction upon your soul. When you worship these idols, you come under the influence of the demonic powers behind them and they carry you away and they lead you about in your life of sin. Say, Paul, what's the point here? I thought you were getting into a section on the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. Why are you bringing up my past life? What does my previous life as an unbeliever have to do with the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Because, listen very carefully, if you come to church just looking for an emotional experience, you're doing the same stuff you did in your pagan days, you're just slapping Christian vocabulary on it. If you come to church because you want to feel something that will make you shout and run around, shake around on the floor, if all you're looking for is some emotional experience that will gratify the flesh, you're doing the exact same stuff you did when you were a Gentile. That's not the power of the Holy Spirit. It's paganism labeled as spirituality. A lot of what's going on in churches today that claim to be under the anointing is really just paganism labeled as spirituality. Okay, Paul, then what does the power of the Holy Spirit look like? What does it look like? Does it mean we we come into church, we don't make a peep, we sit there for three hours, and then we get up and go home? Is Is that what it means? Is it a life of cold, dry, emotionless religion? I want you to notice how Paul answers this question in verse 3. Seen? The problematic ignorance? The past idolatry? In verse 3, we have a preliminary investigation. It is a preliminary investigation because the truth of verse 3 is the fundamental starting point to any study of the practical effects of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. You need this lesson if you're going to understand the rest of the chapter. Before we can study the spiritual gifts, what they are, why they are, etc., etc., we need to have this underlying truth of the Holy Spirit cemented in our hearts and in our minds. You ask, what is the power of the Holy Spirit and what does it look like Paul will tell us in verse 3, and if you really grasp this truth, not just merely intellectually, but if it comes to seep into your heart, you will not be cold, dry, and emotionless. Now, if you really understand what Paul is saying, you just might have a practical experience of emotion. Not because you are chasing a feeling, but because the truth of the Word of God has resonated in your heart. Amen. Follow what Paul says as he unfolds this. Notice in verse 3, he says, Wherefore, I give you to understand. We can stop right there. True spirituality is based on knowledge. It's based on understanding, not darkness and ignorance. Their problem was that they were ignorant. Right. Paul says, you want the power of the Holy Spirit? First thing you need to do, you need to understand some things. You need to have your mind not emptied. 
Amen. That's Eastern mysticism. That's right. Yeah. I, I, my stomach turns anytime I hear Christians talk about, well, you just need to sit there and empty your mind. Paul tells us in Romans 12, what? Be not conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Fill it with the things of God. Amen. True spirituality begins with understanding some things. Be not drunk with wine where it is in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. What's the companion passage? Colossians chapter 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The first thing you need to do is understand some things. Now there are those who will say, well, you better be careful reading all them books and learning all them words and studying all that theology. I've heard it said from a pulpit at a conference I was at. We don't need any men with seminary degrees. We need a man filled with the Spirit. Because don't you know that knowledge and the power of the Spirit are incompatible in that system anyways. Listen, willful ignorance of Jesus Christ and the things of God is not a mark of the Spirit. Amen. It's okay to be ignorant about some things. All of us are ignorant about some things, but you shouldn't want to stay there. Right. Amen. Is he not called the spirit of truth? Right. So Paul says, number one, I want you to understand some things. Okay, what do you want us to understand, Paul? Well, I want you to understand that no man speaking by the spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. Right. To speak by the Spirit has a primary reference to the gift of prophecy. It is to prophesy. And we're we're going to look at that gift and other gifts in later messages, but suffice it for me to say this now. While the gift of prophecy no longer functions in the church as it did in the apostolic age, because we have a completed Bible, we're not waiting uh, on someone to come with a word, we have the word. You hear people say, it must have been so wonderful to live in Isaiah's day or Jeremiah's day. and You go down to the market to buy your groceries and here comes the man of God and he just stands up and says, Thus saith the Lord. How exciting. Well, might be exciting, but here's the sad reality to that. The only time you have the word is when the man of God comes down and says, Thus saith the Lord. And when he's done, you don't have the word anymore. But you as a New Testament Christian, you have the complete word of God with you 24-7. Amen. Chase the rabbit trail, killed the rabbit. Let's keep going. While the gift of prophecy no longer functions in the church, as it did in the apostolic age, the general principle of this verse still applies. And the principle is this. The manifestation of power from the Holy Spirit in a person's life doesn't appear from their ability to get emotional and excited, and it certainly doesn't appear in their ability to exalt themselves. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life appears in their views of the person and work of Jesus. Amen. There it is. Verse 3, Paul is borrowing expressions from Roman society. Among the idolatry of the first century was the worship of the emperor. Roman emperors demanded to be worshipped. Laws were passed at various times in the empire that forced all citizens to publicly declare their allegiance to Rome by making the statement, Caesar is Lord. 
Christians were required to denounce their faith by declaring that Jesus was a curse. So when Paul says this, he's referring subliminally to this formal declaration of renouncing your faith that Christians were required to do. They were forced to utter the Latin phrase, maledicere Christo. Jesus is a malefactor. Jesus is accursed. Jesus is anathema. To call Jesus accursed is to anathematize Him. It is to say that He was one justly condemned to death. It is to agree with His crucifixion and to side with those who murdered the Son of God. It is the epitome of blasphemy. And Paul says that anyone who makes such a statement does not do so by the power of the Spirit. Now, why would Paul say something so blatantly obvious? It's not because there was anyone in the Corinthian church actually saying this, okay? I don't think what we should take from this is that there was someone in the church claiming to have the spiritual gift of prophecy that was getting up in the pulpit and saying, Jesus is accursed. I don't think that was happening because if it were, Paul would have come absolutely unglued. Paul's response to that would have made his Galatian epistle look like a slap on the wrist. I think what Paul is doing here, the reason why he makes such an obvious statement, he's he's using an extreme example to prove the point that the Spirit's power in our life is manifested by our views of Christ. And we see this because he'll contrast it with something later in verse 3. Before your conversion, you may not have verbally called Jesus accursed. The reality is, in your heart of hearts, in your depravity, in your death, in trespasses and sins, that's what you thought about Him. You did not love Him. You did not worship Him. You did not desire Him. You did not live your life to please Him. You hated the idea of a God with a law that got in the way of your sins. And in your life of paganism, you knew nothing of the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says that if if any man has not the Spirit, he is none of Christ's. And I would say to you this morning that if that's still your view of Jesus, if you don't see Him as your Savior and your Lord who has died for you, If you see him as some tyrant in the sky that that just rains on your parade and hinders your life of sin, then you don't have the Spirit of God. You might have a spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit. But brothers and sisters, there's another side to this coin. Paul has told us what the power of the Holy Spirit is not. He's told us what it doesn't look like. But now, he tells us what it is. And I pray that the reality of this glorious truth will reverberate in your soul the way that it has in mine this past week. Notice what he says in verse 3. No man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. To say that Jesus is Lord is the opposite of saying that He is accursed. It is the opposite of saying that Caesar is Lord. It is rather to pledge your allegiance publicly to Jesus 
and to identify with him and his people. The word translated as Lord here in 1 Corinthians 12 is the same word used for Jehovah in the Greek Old Testament. Kyrios. Therefore, when you say that Jesus is Lord, you're making a multifaceted confession. You are saying that Jesus is Jehovah. You are saying that He is truly the Son of God. He is divinity incarnate. Truly God and truly man. Two natures gloriously united in one body without mixture or confusion. You are saying, when you say that Jesus is Lord... That he is the unbridled sovereign of the universe. Amen. And that he rules and reigns over all things. That he has been exalted above all as king of kings and lord of lords. Yes. That he is the judge of the earth who will put all his enemies at his feet. Yes. And there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess his lordship to the glory of God the Father. Amen. That not a square inch of enemy territory will stand against the reign of the Lord of righteousness. Lastly, when you say Jesus is Lord, you are making a personal declaration of your love, devotion, service, and worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, when Paul says no man can say, he's not just referring to merely stating the words. If he were, that would make our evangelism pretty easy, right? Just go out on the street, find an unbelievers. Repeat after me, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. Okay, you have the Holy Spirit. That's not what Paul is saying. It's not just merely saying the words. Anyone can state the words, Jesus is Lord, but listen, only those who have the power of the Holy Spirit at work within them can believe in their souls. Jesus is Lord. Brothers and sisters, do you see it? Do you see it? The power of the Holy Spirit is not in a one-time emotional experience. That's right. The power of the Holy Spirit is not in making some choice to walk an aisle and say a prayer and repeat after me and get baptized. The power of the Holy Spirit is manifested in the miraculous change that was wrought in your heart and in your soul that now causes you not only to say but to believe and live Jesus is Lord. Yes. Amen. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He evidences Himself by a life, by a life in subjection to the Lordship of Christ. Amen. Do you see what Paul is saying in these two verses, verses 2 and 3? You were a Gentile. You were a pagan. You were living in sin, you, you, you were chasing the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. You were swimming in idolatry. You were diving headfirst into carnality. You were in love with your sin. You wanted nothing to do with Him. You wanted nothing to do with His church. You wanted nothing to do with the Word of God. You wanted nothing to do with the Lord of glory. And so how, how, how did you... How did you go from this life of sinful autonomy to a life under the Lordship of Christ? How did you come to love the Savior? How did you come to bow before the King that you once rejected? How did you get from a bar room to a church pew? How did you get from a life of drugs and drunkenness to a life of sober-mindedness and prayer? 
How did you go from setting your eyes on pornography to getting up every morning to set your eyes on the Word of God? How did this happen to you? How did you, a pagan sinner, a wretch, come to say and believe and live a life that proclaims that Jesus is Lord? How did you come to love His gospel? Did you just wake up one morning, make a decision for Christ? Or did you just exercise a little bit of your free will and choose to turn from your sins, chose to born yourself again, made a little choice for Jesus, accepted Him as King, invited Him into your heart as Savior? Paul says, and I stand with Paul, and I trust that you stand with Paul, that you came to call Jesus Lord by the power of the Holy Ghost, working in your heart, regenerating your soul, birthing you again, planting within you that incorruptible seed of life and righteousness that now cries out, Abba, Father. Long your imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. You woke the dungeon flamed with light. Then, by the power of the Spirit, the chains fell off. Your heart was free. You rose, went forth, and followed thee. It was Calvin who said, We cannot so much as move our tongue for the celebration of God's praise unless it be governed by His Spirit. Oh, but when the power of the Spirit begins to work in our life, the Spirit of God will produce within us a high view of Christ and a love for the Savior and a devotion to our precious Lord Jesus. And it wasn't by your own power that such a radical change came about in your life. It was by the power of the Holy Ghost of God working within your soul that changed your heart and made you alive unto God. And you know, let me tell you this. When He saved you, He didn't erase your personality. He didn't change the way you were naturally hardwired. Some of us, more expressive than others. Nothing wrong with that. Again, it's, it's not about how loud we shout or how excited we get. It's about the change mm-hmm. in the way that we live our lives. Mm-hmm. That's what it's about. And you can mark it down in bold black ink A true work of the Holy Ghost always produces a high view of Christ and a desire to serve Him as Lord and Master. That's the power of the Spirit. That's the power of the Spirit. Perhaps the last few months have been tough. Perhaps you've been through experience of coldness and distance. You've struggled to find practical joy and happiness. But so long as that desire is still there, Lord, even when it's hard, I will serve you. His Spirit has never left you. It is within you. It is indwelling you. It is filling you. It is sanctifying you. What we called verse 3, the preliminary investigation, because it must precede our further study of spiritual gifts. I want you to remember this as we look through all of these spiritual gifts. It's not about just excitement and emotionalism, but it's about the Holy Spirit working within you 
to praise and glorify Christ for the blessing of his people. So what are some conclusions of this investigation? How do we know if something is truly of the Holy Ghost? The next time someone comes and tells you about some experience they had where the Spirit was there in power, you can use these three tests here. A test for authentic spirituality or spiritual authenticity. Number one, the Holy Spirit always exalts Christ. Amen. Always. Jesus said of the Spirit in John 16, verses 13 through 14, However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will tell you things to come. He will glorify Me, and He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. That is why the Spirit of God has come into the world, to glorify Christ in you. And if you want to discern whether or not something is of the Holy Spirit, you must ask, does it lift up and magnify Jesus Christ? Mm -hmm. Uh, Listen, if there is a a religious service going on with a full rock and roll band and all the excitement in the world and dancing and shaking and jumping up and down and Christ is nowhere to be seen, it's not the Holy Spirit. Amen. Calvin said the Holy Spirit is the shy member of the Trinity. What did he mean by that? Well, he meant that the Holy Spirit did not come to draw attention to Himself. Mm-hmm. He directs our focus upon Christ. You want to know if the Spirit ministered to your heart in church? Don't leave thinking, wow, I really felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. But did you leave thinking, wow, I saw the glorious truth of the Lord Jesus Christ afresh and anew. I saw more of Him. I saw more of Him. Application, be like that. Be like the Holy Spirit in that you are not here to draw attention to yourself, to draw praise for yourself. Mm-hmm. When you leave this church every Sunday, more than me wanting you to think, what a good sermon, I want you to think, what a great God that was proclaimed in that sermon. Mm-hmm. Secondly, The Holy Spirit is essential to salvation in the Christian life. Essential. Brothers and sisters, we cannot discount the ministry of the Holy Spirit just because of the way it has been abused, perhaps by other Christians or denominations. Why? Because you wouldn't even be a Christian apart from the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus died 2,000 years ago. He was buried 2,000 years ago. He's been at the right hand of the Father for 2,000 years. How did the effects and the benefits of His atoning work on the cross ever come to be applied personally to your heart? The Holy Spirit. It was the Spirit that regenerated you and called you out of darkness and sanctified you and put a love in your heart for Jesus. So again, let me speak bluntly. Don't let the charismatics rob you of the precious truths about the third person of the Trinity. I trust that you're not just chasing some emotional experience. But I also trust that you're seeking more of the Spirit in your daily life. What what you worship is what controls you. We worship a triune God. And I want to be controlled by the Spirit of God. you're going to live a life under the glory of God, you need the ministry of the Spirit. You need it. Thirdly, 
The Holy Spirit makes our Christianity practical and experiential. Biblical Christianity is not a cold, dry, cerebral religion. There is no greater joy than seeing Jesus for who He is and experiencing the love of God poured out on you in Christ. This only happens through the Spirit. He reveals what our Savior has done for us. And one of the greatest experiences that the Spirit ever gives us is the ability to serve others through our spiritual gifts for the glory of Christ. That's Paul's thesis statement, if you will, in this chapter. See, I love preaching. I love it. This is, this is, of all the things I do, this is the most fun. I enjoy this more than anything else. Sometimes the preparation, not so much. Sometimes the reading, not so much. But, but get me in the pulpit. I love it. Why? Because it's my prayer that it's not just me up here. Sometimes you hear a sermon and you think, that old boy was up there by himself. (laughs) I pray it's not just me up here. I pray it's the Spirit of God ministering to you through me as He gets me out of the way and speaks through His Word. The more I serve Him, the more He shows me how utterly unable I am to serve Him apart from the constant ministry and empowering of the Spirit of God. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're still stuck in verse 2. Still a pagan. Still serving those idols, enslaved to that life of sin and that life of idolatry. Let me tell you that the Holy Spirit is still in the business and in the ministry of regenerating sinners. And what He's done for others, even in this room, He'll do for you. You know, one of the greatest things about our church is that a message like this resonates because most of you were not saved early in life. Most of you were not converted when you were six years old at a vacation Bible school. And we have a message that we can preach that says, you've been living for 40, 50, 60 years in a life of sin and in a life of idolatry carried about by these dumb and deaf idols. Don't think so highly of your own depravity as if you're too bad a sinner for God to save. The Spirit of God is quick and powerful and can regenerate your heart. What you must do And you can only do this by the power of the Spirit. It's not walk some mile. In a few moments when this sermon is over, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, get up out of your seat, come to the front. I I, I can't do anything for you, by the way. If you're lost here this morning, I can't do anything for you. Your your parents can't do anything. Your your brother, your sister can't do anything. Your church members can't do anything. Can't do anything for you. The only one that can do anything for you is God. Amen. And my, my call to you is call out to Him. Amen. Call out to Him. If you have a sense of your sinfulness, if you have a sense of your bondage to these dead, dumb idols, and you say, I don't want to be a slave to my sin anymore. I'm just sick of it. 
Oh God, by the power of the Spirit, come into my heart and regenerate me and save me and overcome my depravity and put within me a new heart that sees Christ crucified for me. Come to the Savior. Flee to Him. I wish I could tell you that if you do that in one moment, He'll just take away every sinful lust. Doesn't work that way. Come struggle with us. It's a struggle, but it's a blessed struggle. It's a fight, but brothers and sisters, it's a fight that He's already won for us. And the Spirit is applying that victory day by day. It's applying that victory. And one day, that victory will be consummated. We'll lay down. You know, you won't have to put on the full armor of God in heaven. Amen? Amen. Fight will be over. Sin gone. Satan cast out. But if the Spirit is not working within you here, you won't be with Him there. Come to Christ and by the power of the Spirit say, Jesus is Lord. Father, Father, I thank You for the goodness of God. Father, Son, Holy Ghost, before the foundations of the world, when You purposed to set Your love upon unworthy, guilty sinners, in the fullness of time when the Lord Jesus Christ came in to the world and died on the cross, now for the last 2,000 years, and however many more years until He comes back, the Spirit of God applying the salvation of Christ to all of His people, Sanctify us, Lord. Draw us nearer to You. Conform us into the image of Your Son. Help us to see, Lord, that our salvation in our Christian life is due to nothing that we have done. No glory for our own, but only what You have done in us by faith, according to the Word. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray. That if there is one here that is dead in trespasses and sins, that is enslaved to their idolatry, would you quicken their hearts? Make them alive unto God. For that saint that is struggling with sin, with besetting sin, with indwelling sin, on the verge of a backslide, would you pour out sanctifying grace? Bring them back to the cross. For that saint that they've been slugging it out, reading their Bible, trying to pray, trying to be a good Christian, but the joy is just not there. Would you return unto them the joy of their salvation? Let them experience it. Not void of the truth, but because of the truth. We pray these things, Lord, that you would be glorified in this church. That we would use the ministry of the Spirit not just for our own self-interest, but for the blessing of others. Oh God, help us. We need your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.